Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting programme of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practising across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists' lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off. So I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the 14th guest on the Liminal Gallery podcast is contemporary artist Henrietta Armstrong. Henrietta Armstrong is a multimedia artist and curator based in London, specialising in sculpture, installation and public art. Her most recent work continues her exploration of themes related to personal relics, the mystical unknown and ritualistic practices. Through her work, she encourages us to confront the incongruities within our societal norms, inviting us to question the malleable boundaries between the sacred and the condemned. Her works are heavily research-based, delving deep and fully immersed into subjects before she creates a body of work from her findings. This is the unseen practice, the work that happens before the creation, for which Henrietta and many other artists is the absolute crucible of their practice. Her works stir emotionally and psychologically, but there are many layers of meaning. Working predominantly in plaster, her works are labour-intensive, intricate and completely spellbinding. Armstrong was selected as a finalist for the National Sculpture Prize in 2021 and awarded as a runner-up for the Soho House Art Prize in 2020, where she created an exclusive print edition for Soho Home. She has recently completed a public sculpture commission for the village of Titherington, commissioned by Cotswolds Homes and South Gloucestershire Council. Henrietta Armstrong gained her BA in Fine Art at Sir John Cass School of Art in London, graduating in 2003. Recent exhibitions include Tidelines at Messams in Wiltshire, I Took My Power in My Hand at Liminal Gallery Margate, which was my very first pop-up in Margate, National Sculpture Prize Summer Exhibition at Broomhill Estate, Tilt Summer Show at Hoxton Gallery, Art and Postcards Summer Auction in 2021 and Recreational Grounds Off-Site at Thameside Gallery. Her work is part of the Soho House Permanent Collection and is held in private collections around the world. Henrietta Armstrong, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Louise, and thank you for inviting me to do this and for that wonderful intro that you just gave. I'm flattered. I really am. So welcome. So let's start with your current show, Sanctum Futurum, Relics and Hidden Desires. Tell me about how your interest in sacred objects began and how you translated this into a new body of work. So I guess I think I've always been interested in objects and the meaning that we give to objects and how something can mean a lot to one person and nothing to somebody else also I was thinking about it today I think it's like a an interest in I guess it's about superstition and luck as well and how somebody might carry something around in their pocket that is you know lucky you know like I carry various things around in my pockets at certain points like you know 
lucky crystal or I've got a crystal under my pillow and just funny things like that. I think I'm quite interested in belief and things that people believe in. I think I've been interested in religion, you know, and different religions and what people believe in for quite a long time. I just think find it quite intriguing this idea of things being special and meaning something to somebody and how something if you believe in something it can change you your belief can change you do you know what I mean if something's lucky and you feel like you have that thing with you that might actually bring you extra luck or funny things that people do like little um, rituals that they'll do before playing a, a football match like footballers have rituals and um, maybe people might do certain things like they have a certain coin that they'll rub a scratch card with just things like that I think I've been interested in quite a long time and I mean I've always had an interest in archaeology and natural history and when I was very young I collected lots of things um, natural things I mean we lived in the country so when I was at home and my parents were busy I was always sort of outside playing with my brother and we'd be like rooting around looking for you know bones and fossils and stones and you know I was particularly I think my mum said that I was always looking at the ground and my, my pockets were always filled with conkers and stones when I came home from school and I had like this little cabinet of curiosities by my bed um, that was filled with things that I'd found you know like cow spines and various fossils because there are loads of um, ferns there was a, a slate mine and a coal mine quite near to where we lived at one point and I used to find lots of um, fossilized ferns um, just rooting around like picking and um, so I'd have those in there and I remember my history teacher one of my prized possessions my history teacher gave me this piece of Mount Vesuvius which when I was about seven or eight, which I put in like my mum's like little box, Clinique makeup box, you know, wrapped with loads of cotton wool. And I kind of wrote Vesuvius on it really badly. Um, and just things like, it's just, you know, all these sort of things. So it's about special, lots of special things that I've had in my life, different objects. My, my father used to um, buy me crystals and, and fossils from, you know, from sort of little antique shops and things like that. I think I've just had a special relationship with objects. I don't know if that sounds a bit odd. I mean, I'm not like one of those women that falls in love with the Eiffel Tower or anything like that, but <laughs> I guess it's kind of giving objects a kind of anthropomorphism. And I was thinking today that one way of explaining it in a way would be, I remember going out with my friends a while ago I think it was actually my brother's birthday this was like quite a few years ago and somehow we, we went bowling and somehow I, I don't know how but we removed a bowling ball I mean it was like my perfect size bowling ball <laughs> but I removed it well not me I was actually helped and I didn't even just kind of want it I don't <laughs> but it somehow happened this bowling ball ended up being removed from this bowling alley and then I had it in my bedroom for about a year so somehow we smuggled this bowling ball don't ask and <laughs> it got smuggled out of the bowling alley it was in my bedroom you know it's beautiful it was kind of like green marbled like really sort of kind of like old 50s like pearly I guess it was and then I kept on looking at it and I thought, oh, it's just not living its best life. It's just, you know, I felt so sad this bowling ball had been taken and wasn't doing what it was supposed to be doing. So I smuggled it back in to the bowling alley. This is a year later. You know, I could have just chucked it or, or something like that. And I was like, no, I'm going to restore. I'm going to take it back to its rightful place and then it will be happy. But my mum was like, oh, my God, what are you going to do? Are you going to think you're stealing it? And I was going well, it's already been stolen. They're never going to believe that I'm bringing it back, are they? I mean, like, <laughs> but, you know, Operation Return Bowling Ball to its natural habitat um, went well. Yes, it is hopefully uh, still in use. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just that kind of, you know, returning things to where they should be, I guess. I don't, I don't, know. I don't know if I'm making any sense. 
but I think I've been very interested in these objects. They've been found all over the UK, mainly in Scotland, and they are stone carved balls. A lot of archaeologists have been finding them and they don't know what they're for. They're very intricate in some places, particularly the ones that are up near Scarabray, near the Orkney Islands that have been found up there. And I remember watching this programme about eight or nine years ago and they said, this archaeologist, they were saying, oh, these are very interesting, but what were they for? And the lady archaeologist that was on the programme said, we have no idea whatsoever what they're for at all and there were many many theories whether they were talking stones you know but we just have no idea what they are and I really like that idea you know it's because it's a lot of archaeology we apply meaning that is completely made up I mean it's all theories that we just don't actually know because there wasn't any writing at the time or and so I've been making my own carved versions of these for for quite a long time actually maybe seven or eight years I've not really ever done much with them so I'm, I'm kind of yeah waiting for a point where I can unveil these things I guess but I, I quite like making them but so with this exhibition I guess I think it came around I had these antlers which I bought for a particular purpose I bought them off the internet and then they were so part of what I needed them for was to cut them up and they were so beautiful I couldn't do it I, so I just had them in my room and I sort of displayed them just as as precious things and then I'd been quite getting into sort of mold making the past few years and I just thought oh, I'd really like to cast one so I started casting them and made these molds and then sort of just played and I think this exhibition came about from it was very intuitive really like I've played a lot more with the works than I normally do I normally have a very definite idea of what I'm going to make and it's actually been very freeing quite joyous you know in a way just to kind of go well that I'll just stick that and that and then see what happens and that's been quite something for me I think the main interest for the exhibition is very interested in reliquaries, which are the cases for relics. Um, they're mainly sort of in the Catholic Church, but relics, which are sacred religious objects, exist in nearly all different religions. But the reliquaries particularly are these ornate cases within the Catholic Church that you might have an arm bone of a saint and the artist or reliquary maker has created the hand and the the arm to house the arm bone. I mean, there are many, many different relics and all of them are custom made. So, so you might have, uh, I mean, they vary. You might have a, a hand, you might have an arm bone, you might have a foot and... I was just kind of interested in these cases, first of all, and, and just playing with different things and sort of thinking about how um, things would come about um, and the idea about mass-produced relics as well. So I started to research into um, relics and sort of how they came about, and I found out that you have... I think this is, exists within the Catholic Church particularly. I'm not sure about other religions, but you have a first-hand relic, a second-hand relic, and third-hand relics. So a first-hand relic is, um, say, a piece of flesh or bone of a saint, and a second-hand relic is something that's spent considerable time with the saint. So it could be a piece of wood from the Holy Cross or a nail from the Holy Cross that's had blood on it, or it could be something like the Turin Shroud and then a third-hand relic is just anything that's spent considerable time with a first or a second-hand relic. So there are people within the Catholic Church that, or over time, have mass-produced relics. So because they can just rub um, something on a first or a second-hand relic and then suddenly it becomes a relic. And I was just really interested in this. I've, I've looked at sort of the idea of mass produced relics for quite a long time. You know, when I went to, I was in Brazil and I looked at all the Jesus Christ 
statues there and it was just this really interesting thing of like all these these many sort of Jesus statues and you're thinking well if there are lots of them does it mean that the meaning is greater or is it diminished does it take away from it the story about this this guy who's a priest who who works up north somewhere he sells relics on ebay to fund his cat sanctuary so he is generating relics by rubbing things on other things to make relics and then selling them to people that believe in it which is just I mean that's when I started to think well this is a bit woo woo because I hadn't really thought about the hypocrisy and about sort of the witchcraft until that and I was like hang on a minute you're basically asking people to believe in magic like you go over there you kiss the toe of St Peter and you're going to be healed but no you know those women or people over there are herbologists but that is witchcraft but believe in our magic but not their magic you know it's all about control it's all completely about control so I think the relics were very very powerful objects they were exchanged because people within villages or, or places they would visit these things and they or even though they were said not to worship them because even the, the catholic church would be against idolatry there was a power within them but it was a very sort of fine line because they found that people were kind of worshiping them because they were like oh you know we've got the, the you know the bone of this amazing person I mean, a bit bit like sort of fans now, you know, you're having a bit of chewing gum that Harry Styles chewed on or something like that. You know, it's just, um, yeah, I just looked at that and I thought, mm, this is really interesting. So you took all of this research and ongoing interest and then you translated it into a new body of work. Did you have it in mind that you were going to work with wax following from the votives? Did you have it in mind that you were going to work again with plaster? Because I know you worked with plaster before. And also the fact that you've made sculpture that's wall-based as well. Uh, did you kind of have that in mind or did it happen quite organically? I mean, it happened quite organically. I think I always, I love working in plaster. I love it as material. I think it's beautiful and I, I like its fragility. And I've worked with plaster quite a lot. I think it's funny how you notice patterns and how things start to sort of come out as you go along, really. But I mean, I do really like working in it. And also, I do have quite a lot of it left over. So that's also another thing. Like sometimes I think with the... I didn't expect to have the wall hanging things and it wasn't until I started making these things and then I was sort of I think originally with the antlers I was looking at making arrangements of them which I started playing and then which may still happen <laughs> but, but I just did start playing around with things and I had some bits and pieces in my studio and I was like oh well, what you know happens if I do that or if I cast because I was thinking, I started to think about, I think that's is what it's all about in a way, which were votives. They, again, exist in many different religions, but it's you particularly find wax votives in southern Italy and Spain. You know, they're really beautiful things that you might be lucky enough to see in an old church. So you've got votives, which are offerings to God. If there's something that you want or there's something, say, if you've got something wrong with your foot, then you'd give a wax foot and hang it up and pray that your foot gets better. Or if you want a baby, then you'd make a wax baby. Or I'm assuming they'd have somebody to make them unless I haven't quite looked into that. But, you know, or maybe people made their own. I'm not quite sure, but hang that up and hopefully you'd be bestowed with a baby. So it's all about wishes and hope. And and I think hope is a powerful thing. And I think that's what my work is. This work is about a lot, you know, and these objects is about hope. And I think that's something that we need. And so you've got X votives as well, which are votives, which I think it's tra traditional sometimes to give a gift which is like making this wax thing to be thankful when you've received what you wanted. So there'd be ex votos, which would be for, you know, be more traditional to do it after you've got what you wanted. 
whereas you've got votives which are anything that can be left without ever having any intention of being picked up or taken away it's left as an offering so it could be say at Stonehenge and in that area around Avebury they found lots of pits where there are votives where they, they're just like sort of people have come and visited and they've just managed to scratch together a, a little chalk ball to, to leave as a something with meaning unknown but maybe to be thankful or to leave your mark or yeah as an offering to something so you've got those and then then it made me think about charms as well so because I was making these sort of hanging votives and I was looking at how to attach them really and I thought well how am I going to make this casing I don't want it to look rudimentary I want it to look you know and then I thought hang on a minute I'll just put the chain straight into it and I can do that and then I've got it and it's simple so and then I was like you know and then I became obsessed with shoving chains <laughs> um but then that linked on to the idea of charms because I was like well you know you've got these Pandora bracelets and then you can I think my mum used to have a, a gold charm bracelet you know which you would add she's got a, a, a really beautiful antique one where you have all these unusual charms that you would add on to and you collect one for different anniversaries and things so it's that idea you have a Pandora now, which, you know, is a modern version and people can buy little things to add for different anniversaries. And it means something. So when you look at that charm, it might be a birthday charm or it might be something for, you know, an exam or, you know, something like that. So I was thinking, ah, oh, you know, these can also be charms. So they can be relics, they can be charms or they can be votives. So it's all interwoven, if you know what I mean. And it's all about luck and wishing something and, you know, it's having these special things and, and, and hope, ultimately. And a lot of the hands and the feet that you have cast, they're your own, but then they're also friends and family. Was that important to use people that you knew that were close to you? And my other question before I forget it is that, you're taking inspiration from all of your research, but then you're reinterpreting it for a contemporary reason, a contemporary, not even a God, but maybe offerings to a contemporary ideal. Yeah, I think in a way that I think that's one thing that kept on coming back to me. I kept on thinking, and that was actually going to be the, one of the titles of the pieces, but I forgot. It was going to be, you know, the old gods aren't working. We need some new ones, you know. Because right, I just feel at this time, you know, the so many situations are just, you know, very scary. And I think so many things are happening that just, particularly with the climate crisis, with what's happening with Russia and the Ukraine, and it just feels like what's happening. And we just, you know, we can't believe in our prime ministers anymore we can't believe in our presidents we can't believe in all of these people in power that run these huge corporations because they're all corrupt we can't believe in film stars anymore all these people are letting us down and it's like it feels like maybe the gods are letting us down as well whoever they may be but I was thinking like you know looking to the future and thinking well let's make some new ones if that sounds a bit, um, yeah, arrogant, yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously, in a tongue-in-cheek way, but it's just, yeah. And, no, I think, it, I think it was really important to me to not only use my body. I think I used my body out of convenience, really. I'm not in any way saying I'm the perfect specimen of a uh, woman. I'm not Anthony Gormley. Um, but I thought, <laughs> you know, but I really wanted my mum, you know, my mum and my friends. There were, you know, more people that I wanted to cast. And, I, you know, I think this is an ongoing body of work that I'm really excited about. I mean, yeah, I, I didn't expect it to be. I didn't know what it was going to be, to be honest. I think this was completely, you know, a new area. I was kind of stepping away from what I'd been working on. Not completely, but, you know, I wanted to do something new. And I'm just really excited about it because I've got so many ideas for new things and it just feels like a really good place to be 
creatively but I think you know I used my brother's hand which came out amazing it just looked like the hand of David <laughs> so beautiful and um, my mum's hand and I that, that was quite emotional it was a bit creepy actually when I took it out of the cast she wasn't there but it was kind of that was the first other person's hand that I'd cast and I was like oh this is a bit weird and um, just it was just yeah strange why was it creepy I don't know it was kind of a bit wet but also it's white and it did feel a bit sort of you know because my mother's quite old I guess you know she's uh, you're not really uh, of course you know she's older I won't say her age but yeah it just felt a bit sort of death masky I did feel a bit like oh you know I wanted my mum's hand to be in it you know I've thought a lot about things like that and about Maggie Hambling and how she drew her mother and I saw her recently just at a talk and I really thought about that quite a lot and how lovely that was. And, you know, I thought just, you know, I've got my mother's hand now. It was quite a weird thing to have in your hand and you've got your your mother's hand. I think it was quite, you know, it's funny. It's again, it's like special objects. And my father passed away when I was about 12 and I don't, I don't really have many things at all from him you know, I have some memories, obviously, but, you know, I was quite young. So I think, again, that's kind of why objects are quite special. I'm not, like, really super materialistic, but I think there are certain things that are just precious, I guess. And it made me think about, you know, how, say, our ancestors, particularly around the Neolithic times, they had, you know, the long barrows. Again, they find these burial mounds around the world for different places where bones have been interred so there people will die and they'd usually do a sky burial which is where people would die and then they'd sort of lay them out so that the nature could do its thing the birds could do its thing and then they would take the bones and the bones would be special so then they'd put them into these places but what they found is that they found that they'd moved them around and it was like they weren't just putting them in there like we would sort of in a grave they were actually going in quite often and moving them around, taking them out for different ceremonies and putting them back. So they had a very different relationship with death to how we do. So I think it was just important to use my friends um, as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, the more you think about it, the more, you know, the more sort of meaning that um, implies. I think one of my friends, Hayley, said it was her dream to be a hand model and I'd made it come real oh so, wow um yes yes and she has very very skinny fingers so I've been like looking at different people's hands and you notice them more I'm like oh you've got nice little skinny fingers come to my studio <laughs> you kind of touched on this before but in particular this exhibition touches on the hypocrisy of the catholic church for praising a person with magical qualities whilst also spearheading the murder and torture of so-called witches. And I think that that is such an interesting perspective because it's something that I have never considered before. What made you kind of draw those comparisons? I kind of touched on it before. It just came through just doing sort of research into the relics and how, I guess, because, yeah, I was, I was saying before that they were very, very powerful items you know I think to gain favor with people the church would send a bone of St Catherine over to you know so they would be exchanged for favors they were like powerful items that were used because at one point the church different religions were much more powerful and were more powerful than the government so they would be exchanged in favors for different things so you'd have like different saints split up and their bodies are everywhere so you've got you know St Catherine I think it's got a bone and a rib somewhere and different you know in in different countries as well it just seems so bizarre and macabre and it's quite sort of desecrating in a way but I guess it's just this this funny thing and I, I came to these ideas I think years ago I read the first thing I knew about relics was quite a long time ago when I read My Family and Other Animals. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's, it's a really funny book. I mean, even if you read, read it as an adult, it's kind of like this old charm because it's it's written in a you know different time. But it's all about this mother who moves 
abroad to Crete, you know, and she takes her family, her son, and one of him, he loves collecting animals. There's loads of animals there. And they're in this village in this very different sort of world. And I think at one point he gets, I remember he gets drawn into this procession with villagers and he doesn't quite know what they're doing and he's separated from his family, but he just kind of thinks like, oh, I'll just do what they're doing because I'm being carried down the road and they're all going up this sort of church steps and getting down and kissing this thing. And he just doesn't know what they're doing. I mean, I think he's about eight or something, but he just does what, they do and he said he sort of bows and gets down on his knee and, and kisses this shriveled up toe thing that they're all sort of worshipping you know because this is what they do as well like take the saints bodies and take them all around the towns and processions on various saints days and it's just it just seems yeah it's just it's just quite sort of fantastical do you know what I mean in a way I think through doing this sort of research I was just like so you're asking people to kiss this magical toe yet people were just trying to save lives or they were just doing something or they were they weren't doing anything wrong they were just you know particularly when witchcraft took hold and all of the trials and everything people would just be again became a control and power thing because people could just say anything they wanted and just say witch to anybody and and have their neighbor burnt and end up having their land so it just became this crazy thing but you can't say well you know they're worshiping these bones over there and yet you're saying that they're in league with the devil because they're doing that and you actually have no proof so a lot of relics came about or there was a big boom in relics sort of happened after the crusades i think there was a roman emperor and his mother it might be a myth but we're not sure um well i'm not sure but in reading but there was this roman emperor and his mother took it upon herself to search for the true cross so she traveled to sort of around Bethlehem and the story goes that there were three crosses still kept wherever they were but obviously this is very very early days of, of Christianity as well so you know Christianity isn't a very old religion I mean it's only about 2,000 years as is Islam so she looked for this cross found three crosses and the way that they could tell the difference between the three crosses which was the true holy cross that Jesus was hung upon was by taking somebody who was ill and when they touched the true cross they were healed and then so a lot of soldiers came back from the crusade so she took quite a lot of the cross back but left a lot of it there but all the soldiers coming back from the crusades all came back with a bit of the true cross so then they were saying well actually there are enough pieces of the true cross to build ships so it was just you know there weren't they weren't all real, but the Catholic Church didn't really have any way of deciding which ones were real or which ones weren't. They didn't have no way of authenticating what was a real relic and what wasn't. And they didn't have this for at least a thousand years after the beginning of all these relics existing. And then they said, thought, well, this is a problem. We've got all of these relics and, and nobody knows which ones are real or not. So what they did was they said that you know certain religious figures certain bishops and certain you know could say that is a true relic and that isn't a true relic and and there were certain things where they were saying you know a piece of the holy cross would make the oil it was preserved in boil or, or do all these weird things and that's how you could tell but they just didn't have any any kind of authentication process apart from somebody supposedly trusted saying Yes, that is. But then again, you know, you could have somebody who had a supposed piece of the Holy Cross that they were very proud of. And then obviously, if they said it wasn't real, then they wouldn't be very happy. So there's just lots of this weird corruption around it as well, which is, you know, it's quite fascinating. And there are so many different relics. There's a tongue, there is hands, there are the eyes, just the most bizarre things. And you think this is just quite odd and um 
there is supposedly a piece of the holy foreskin which was sort of taken from baby jesus yes which which does exist and is is worshipped in places i don't know if people are you know what sort of relics would be made from that but they all have really interesting stories as well and this is why i quite like the catholic church i mean i would say i'm I'm very interested in lots of different religions and I would say, you know, I'm kind of spiritual as in like, again, I believe in certain things, but then I'm sticking my bag or whatever. When I travel, I carry like a Catholic card. I've got like a little Buddha. I've got lots of different things that I've taken from lots of different places. <laughs> so it's kind of like, I guess I'm just hedging my bets. You know, that's really what I'm doing. So I've got a bit from all religions just to sort of, hedging my bets <laughs> but I think particularly with the Catholic Church I mean my mum became Catholic later on in in life when my brother went to a Catholic school and I had um, lessons with a Catholic monk um she asked me if I'd be interested in in learning about Catholicism and I had lessons for a year in in this um abbey at, down in the catacombs um uh, with this 80 year old monk every Monday for a year and and he gave me some very very interesting answers um he gave me the best answers I've ever had from anybody about life and and things like that but then it did come down to at some point it was just like well that's just faith so and it yeah that was incredibly interesting but that's why I like I do like the Catholic Church as one because they have as compared to cv the floweriness is sort of taken out of it whereas you know with catholicism you've got the devil and you've got you know hell and i quite like that i like the darkness you know and they have all these sort of ancient stories that are very dark as well and the monk you said that he gave you some amazing answers are there any nuggets that you still carry with you that you clearly remember that you apply to your life i guess he was so positive you know, he was a very, very good person. You could feel it coming off him. So I think it's just, you know, kindness, I think, really is, is the most important thing. Yeah. So when the reformation of the church happened, I think that a lot of relics were destroyed. And I think they wanted to, and I think that's happened recently as well, they want to very much change the image of the church and... Catholicism and sort of fade out the kind of more traditional sides with the frankincense and um, everything. But I think particularly when the Reformation happened in the in the 1600s, 1700s, 1600s, I think it was, they particularly didn't like the fact that people were worshipping these things, which was, it was never really about that. You had the, the more Protestant style destroying all these bones and they're saying there should be no idolatry and you know let's get sort of get everything back on track they should be worshiping god and you know jesus and so a lot of relics were destroyed so then the catholic church you know particularly in rome were worried and thinking well what are we going to do We've, we're running out of bones and we're losing power over the people you know they're not going to be, believe as much and around the 1700 under Rome they found this sort of catacomb of all these bodies laid out full skeletons and hundreds of them and they were like oh well you know and it was quite an old tomb so they were thinking these must have been sort of very very early Christian martyrs and they were like yes this is great so we can ship these bodies out and particularly where they were losing power was around sort of Germany where we were losing faith and they didn't just sort of ship this full skeleton as they were because they were the early martyrs, because obviously Christianity at the point that they thought these bodies were interred. So these were very, very special martyrs, so they thought, and they had them decorated. So they were wrapped in sort of lace and muslin and, and they had uh, stitching and jewels sort of interwoven around them so they were decorated so they looked beautiful I mean this is always the power of the church isn't it that you create this space and you make things gold and beautiful colors you know when people have no money so they would be made to look absolutely beautiful so that 
if you saw this spectacle, you would just be absolutely in awe. And they ship them out to different villages. And they're really, I mean, it's just, I was reading this book a while ago and, and they're really macabre, but really kind of beautiful, quite sort of, I mean, just astounding things. I mean, and they still exist, some of them. I mean, they're kept in various different places. And in some of the places, because I think at some point they found out that they weren't what they thought they were. So a lot of them were destroyed, but there are still some that are hidden away all year round until a particular saint's day. And then they'll be brought out and they'll be paraded around the village. So again, just amazing things and quite spectacular to see. I'd really love to go and visit some actually. I think in one place they had so many bones that they basically, they had to create an ossery, which is where they decorated the whole church with all these bones and everything. And, you know, they just had so many. So they almost made it like the catacombs in, in Paris, which is a, a place I really love, but it just uh, decorating the whole church. So it just looks so like morbid, but, but you're like, well, no, but these are special bones, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just that kind of thing. If you felt, you know, with the witchcraft thing, it's sort of like you saw the people going. So that's a devil's altar, witches, they're putting bones everywhere and that's witches. But, oh, and no, we've put bones all around our altar. But it's this is special because these are special magical beings that have gone up to heaven. And if you believe in it, you're going to go to heaven, too, you know. I'm going to go to hell now after saying all of this, aren't I? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you need to yeah. get some more sacred objects sticking in your handbag. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> more charms, more charms. <laughs> going back to the actual exhibition, which opened, it just opened on the 11th of August, which at the time of recording this is only a few days ago. It has been really interesting to see so many different perspectives on the show. I think that people see what they want to see and there's certain aspects of the show that really dominate the focus for different people. So like one person said that it was quite violent because of the chains, the really heavy chains, some of them are quite spiky. Another person said that it was very sexy and I guess the in the title, The Forbidden Desires, you know, that conjures up these ideas. But then there's also very much the religious iconography, especially with the snake mural as well in the back. So I think it's been really interesting seeing what other people bring to the exhibition and which bits really trump all the rest. Because there's so many ideas and your research has been quite widely focused. I think I really like that as well, because a lot of these are symbols that are quite common. I mean, there were more things, you know, there were some things that I didn't put into the show, but there were things that were left out, you know, it just wasn't kind of right for the space in the end, but there are more. And I think it's interesting with these simple symbols, you know, everybody has hands, everybody has heart you know all these different things and you add these things together and everybody adds their personal experience into things and I think that is the interesting thing I mean it adds a bit of tongue-in-cheek to the forbidden desires thing because it's kind of what people see in it I mean somebody asked me if I was really into bondage and somebody else said that they they thought that the chains were all about me being bonded into a relationship that those chains represented some kind of like shackles yes exactly and I was just like oh <laughs> yeah and it's really interesting because I was like is this how they feel because these are very simple symbols but people put them together in their mind through their own yeah how people perceive it is always really interesting always with art I think how what people read into things well, I, th I just think that's nice in a way, because if you, you just don't lead people too much, then they think, you know, but you can have maybe five people that come out thinking the show's about something completely different because of what the meaning that they imply. But it's almost like the meaning as well that people imbue objects with. So something can be really special to somebody, but then and other people are like, oh, no, I you know, that's really important, but that's not yeah, that's true. It's like a child's comforter or something, you know, like it can just be a blanket and people are like, oh, it's mm. getting old and tatty, just chuck it out. But to that child, it's like the most comforting thing in the world. And 
I guess that we still do it as grown-ups you know like there's a particular rock that you found on a really beautiful sunset beach walk and you pick it up and you think oh you are just going to go pride of place on my mantelpiece on my special shelf and you do like I guess you associate your lived experiences with certain things don't you but then if you collect too many special stones I have to start labeling mine because I'd have Have to one and I was like I'm like I'm never gonna forget where this is from and then I forget where they're from yeah that's such a good idea (laughs) and then you're you're like oh god you know like I can't remember where it's from and it was special and now it's not special because I can't remember where it's (laughs) because I tend to pick up stones and things from a lot of places and I have a, a friend who actually politely asked me not to bring her any stones anymore no way uh, <laughs> yes she was like I she's going but in a nice way she's like I have enough special stones Henry please don't bring me any more <laughs> but then she felt guilty so she bought me a stone from somewhere so yeah it's just yeah it's funny isn't it <laughs> oh dear so backtracking completely can you tell me how you got into art and what drove you towards it and what made you become the artist that you are today? I mean, I guess I've always created things ever since I was younger. As soon as I could, I was making things, making robots, making drawings. I never necessarily thought that I'd go into art, you know, because when I was younger, obviously I wanted to be everything, Um I still do. I've decided, obviously, I realise I'm not going to be a ballerina anymore. I've given, let that go. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think at one point, I really, you know, I was thought I'd be a doctor. I thought I'd be a surgeon. And at one point, I decided between science and art. And I thought, it came up to it. I mean, even up to A-level, I did two sciences and I did two arts. And um, I thought, well if I go into the arts and I can go off and I can do residencies and I can work with people and I can go into subjects as much as I want or as little, obviously I should have realised that one was a lot better paid than the other. But I just, you don't think that, do you? (laughs) So yes. So, but with art, I think there's not really a choice. I think there's a kind of a compulsion to make work. I think if I don't make work, then I feel ill after a while. It's like a kind of a fourth dimension to my life. I need to sort of feed that thing. You know, if I stop doing it, I'd, I'd actually be quite be quite ill, if, if that doesn't sound weird. Um, and it's weird because it's like not making art is actually, you can become ill from it, but then... It's also art is the greatest cause of stress in my life. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's not really a choice to make. I mean, obviously you it is. At some point I could just go, this is just, I can't do this anymore. But, you know, I think now I'm just like, what, what would I do now? Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I just love making things and I love learning and exploring things and I couldn't imagine doing anything else really you know and I I think I'm very lucky to be doing what I'm doing and also I think you know when you were saying you know what's made me the artist I am today I guess just keeping on going you know I've had to overcome a lot of fear as all artists do just and find belief in myself at points where that you know there's none and you know it has been a struggle I think it's it can be a real struggle but I think now when I look back, you know, and I'm really pleased and I don't look back very often because you're always looking forward and you're always thinking about the next and the next. But I think it's very important for everybody to look back at what they've achieved, because I think you do actually get some sense of something. But if I look back and I think, well, you know, I've actually come quite far because I know, you know, I know it wasn't easy. You know, everybody suffers from that inner saboteur and it can be particularly strong or you know difficult at different times you know you've got something really important on you can be sort of your own worst enemy doing everything you possibly can to just ruin it if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah I think there's a lot of mental health issues in art and I think that I'm not alone when you know I have suffered from depression over the years and I think that a lot of people do as well and I think sometimes creating is right there in the it's almost like the hell mouth 
because you're trying to do something you're trying to make a show happen you're trying to make something happen and you're also sort of fighting against other demons that are there with you and it can be very difficult so I think lots of people have that and it's it's something that's not talked about enough but yeah you get there in the end eventually <laughs> and how do you overcome it do you have your own ritual sometimes I think I think as you get older you learn how to deal with things a bit better I think you learn what not to do you know like you might just want to go out sort of with your friends partying or something and you'd think like well no that is really not a good idea right now yeah to basically practice self care to look after yourself to do things that you don't necessarily automatically do but just to be kind to yourself as well eating well spending time with friends and people that care about you going for a walk going out in nature because i think particularly i think with this exhibition i was having creative block a lot at the beginning and it was really frustrating and i would just sometimes just going out for a walk and i'm very lucky to have a nice park near me just going for a walk there would actually make such a difference you know i think it's obviously there's so much about it at the moment but it's is true just going out sitting outside for a little bit and hearing birds or looking at water or something like that it, it does make a massive difference and you do like to take a bath as well we can't not mention your bath habits yes you know I like my <laughs> bath <laughs> yes you know I like my <laughs> bath yeah um, and my soap oh yeah <laughs> your soap yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah and like you say self-care I think that's just such an important part of any person who works in a particular type of way especially when you just throw your absolute all at everything then having that kind of moment to yourself to be like almost level yourself out again and I think a bath is such a purifying experience isn't it yeah I definitely find it really it's almost like it's washing away something that, that washing away the day washing away the badness yeah I do find it very I feel kind of transformed after having a bath but also I think the things with self-care and people talking about it obviously it's there's a lot about it everywhere which is great because obviously there's so much problems with mental illness um since the pandemic I mean it was pretty bad before and there needs to be more money pumped into that um from the government and more help but I think that you know also the problem is with these words bandied about and you now you've got Instagram with all of these people being life coaches and everything and everybody's a life coach but it makes these things become cliche I think that's the problem and it shouldn't be cliche you know it's self-care is is obviously it can be such a different thing to different people but I think it's particularly for people it's hard to do something for yourself and I think you know just to do something for yourself is quite a big deal for a lot of people and I think they don't actually realize it to sit down and say well actually I'm just going to go sit down and read that magazine and I've wanted to do it a week and I'm going to do it and I'm going to own it and I'm going to love it because ultimately I think it's about you know because we live in a world with so little time I think time is so precious if I'm talking about mental health in art, though, I should talk about my friend Liz, who runs Broken Grey Wires, who, which is actually sort of, she runs an organisation which she started up a few years ago, which is looking at artists who suffer from mental health and sort of within art. So she's doing good things and running some very cool exhibitions that she does. As I think that everyone would have already understood your work is incredibly research-based and I feel like with every project you really delve into it headfirst turn it inside out and then start making why is this such an important part of your process and have you ever considered doing something with your research I don't know I really like learning and I think I also sort of learning about things so that I can talk about them and finding like an interesting angle and you know trying to delve a bit deeper than that sort of surface thing I think you know I want to know about things because then the more you know about you know they say knowledge is powers but the more then you might get a slightly different angle on something and 
I think particularly with this area and sort of symbology and there are so many meanings throughout because it's all about humanity and within each culture there are so many different meanings within different even with the some of the hands in the votives or the hand charms were based on charms in southern Italy that so one of them is the mano cornuta which people wear as a charm around their neck so it's a fingers sort of it looks a bit like the rock symbol like rock on but it's against the evil eye it's something that's sort of against the devil and then there's another one that's a similar meaning and it's again a charm that is in sort of certain places in Italy which is the mano figa which is again a charm but it's got the thumb between the sort of the first two fingers and that is a sort of it's basically almost putting your finger up as a symbol so you could do that sort of shaking your fist at the evil eye sort of to ward off it's an apopatraic symbol so these are symbols of protection so an apopatraic um, symbol is yeah you have many different things it's like having the medusa's head above a bridge sort of or an archway is is a protective thing and you find all of these different symbols like the glass eyes in turkey and greece and everything the blue eyes is again warding off the evil eye and there's so much symbology it's just our culture all of our you know the world cult, you know so rich with these different things and different meanings and it's just human beings and how things change with language and it's, it's yeah I find it fascinating uh so the Manu Figa is I think it originates because um they said that a woman's genitalia looked like a fig and so it's it's got some sort of connotation in with that and you know some kind of rude connotation but it's again how our worst word I don't know if I'm allowed to sort of swear on this podcast you know but the the worst word is is also to do the female genitalia but it's just interesting how that can be such an awful thing and it's kind of like well obviously why a lot of these things are being reclaimed but I think also I looked at that and I thought well you know sort of because, you know, I'm a gay woman and I just thought it's so interesting how within cultures and things that women are so demonised, it's with the, the witches and how even our genitalia is like a, such an awful, disgusting thing that it can be used to ward off the evil. You know, it's just such a, I don't know, just so, yeah, interesting. Interesting, but also sickening. Yes, yeah no it just I mean there are so many things that just make you really really angry and you just think oh you know I'm looking at medieval things or things that are very old but then you're thinking actually have we come forward in any way in a ways not you know you look at things and you think well things haven't changed as much as really not as much as they should have um, at all but yeah, I, I think I just like knowing, you know, knowing about things and learning about things, you know, and also I like the idea of people learning when they look at the work. So they learn something that they didn't know. I think that's, you know, quite important that people can come away with a story almost. You're interpreting something and you're passing that on to people so that they go home with more than a visual feast for the eyes you know they're going home with something that then they can learn or they can look at or they can tell somebody about so you know I think that's quite important within art to process you know we're processing the world and then you know if you find something really interesting then you tell somebody about it I had thought maybe to do some kind of publications I guess at some point I think that's what what else can you do all a bit of writing um I don't write enough I'd like to write more but I think mainly in images so I just don't I I can write reasonably well but I think I should write more just to access that side of my brain and I do you know I like writing but it's just I just need to do it a bit more so yeah maybe I'll think about how to how to bring all these things together yeah I think a lovely coffee table publication would be mm. delightful yes 
Well, yes, we'll get thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Coffee table, yes. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, I Mm. think that's publications and thing. you know, books are lovely, aren't they? Yeah, I think it would just lend itself so well to your work. It just makes so much sense because you do so much research beforehand. And I think that's the problem sometimes, I think, with exhibitions. You go to an exhibition and it's interesting you see the text for the exhibition and then you look at the work and sometimes it's it's very disconnected and sometimes the text that you read is more highfalutin than the work and you're like or you know you're kind of like really and it feels almost like the writing was written blindly or before and I think sometimes people don't have to read the text I think you know the work should speak for itself but I think it should be when you read it that you you do get a little something extra so the questions that I ask everyone what do you enjoy most about your practice I think making I I just love learning new skills I think it's I think I'd like to be known as skillful I think I'd like to push myself I think and I like to see what I can achieve and I mean it's obviously sometimes that's incredibly stressful for me and for everybody else around me (laughs) but I do like to push myself and and learn new things you know I I tend to do I've never used wax before and I was just like well let's learn how to do it you know it's seeing those skills progress obviously I've done quite a lot of mold making before but the molds become more intricate and more complicated, like having to work out how to do the lamb's heart and things like that, because obviously it was a fresh thing that I only had a limited amount of time to work with. And I wanted a 360 degree. I wanted all of it. So just working out how to do that. So I think I do a lot of problem solving. I think it's the challenging myself that I enjoy the most, I think, and seeing if I can do something. And then usually when I've done it, then I move on, you know, I don't sort of sit there and revel in it. I'm just sort of like, oh, okay, that works. And then you just want to do something else. So I should say making money, selling my work. No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) Making loads. No. (laughs) Well, maybe that's the answer for the next question is what do you find the most frustrating about your practice? I guess I don't really get, I mean, there's not many things I get frustrated about my practice I think really apart from just having block days where you can't think of things that's always very frustrating the brain block but I think probably with the wider art world I think it's probably the way sometimes artists get treated and I think that we tend to be you know the bottom of the pile a bit uh, well, well a lot obviously over the years but I think there are things like art coaches and teaching people how to sell their work and things like that and it's like more things that people are paying for or expected to pay for and artists expected to give their time for free a lot and you know we put a hell of a lot in and I just think there's not enough support I think for artists at all and I think people don't quite understand artists and I think they have very much have this very old-fashioned view of some artists in there Garrett and you know but there are so many different artists you know young artists coming up and they're making art in so many different ways but still there just doesn't seem to be that much support and I think it's something where all our funding is being cut because of this government and during the pandemic what did we turn to everything you know we art and culture kept the world going music films art that people were looking at on Instagram you know and you'd think like after this awful experience that the world had together and the how important art and culture became to keeping people sane all of these different things that we relied on in that time where we had nothing and we were trapped in our rooms and all the funding's being cut so it's sort of it's just a kind of two fingers it's a bit like the nurses and the NHS it's like oh you know thank you so much you saved our lives but we're not going to give you a couple of quid extra it's just you know I think that's what frustrates me the the funding and support that isn't there. So is there anything else you'd like to mention about your current solo exhibition at Liminal Gallery Sanctum Futurum Relics and Forbidden Desires? go and see it (laughs) oh I just I just really hope that people enjoy the show I mean it's 
been a culmination of quite a lot of work and I mean I've really enjoyed it I think it's yeah I'm really happy with what I've produced and I hope that people really like it as well I think yeah it'd be really interesting you know to hear what people I want to hear what people think about it if people to get in contact because it is an area which I know you know other artists have looked at votives other artists have you know looking at these things as well I think it's just it was interesting to to put it in my own kind of combination but yeah it'd be interesting to get to hear back from people about it and also yeah thank you so much for this opportunity I'd say you know thank you for letting me have your space and trusting me not to destroy it (laughs) um I'd say (laughs) oh it's such a pleasure it's so nice to be able to work together because we met on another project and then you were part of my first ever pop-up show in Margate and so it's so nice to be able to give you that platform and that space to make a whole new body of work which I'm so so honoured to show I think that you were saying earlier that this is the start of a bigger project and that is just so exciting that I was able to debut it Mm, and that it was something that will continue and grow and and I'm very excited and it's such a beautiful show you've done a really really good job and I know you've thrown so much of your work and energy emotional and physical energy (laughs) into it so it's a thing of beauty I'm very proud of you thank you yeah and I was thinking the other day and I was walking along by the coast in Margate and I was thinking like oh it's so strange you know like when we met years ago like just to have come and re- you know thought about all these different things that we'd end up doing together it's quite funny isn't it it's really nice isn't it mm. and who'd have thought like all these years later you'd be buying my son a, a bouncy unicorn toy <laughs> <laughs> well you know and rainbow bunny ears if a gay auntie can't buy him rainbow bunny ears then what <laughs> is the world coming to <laughs> exactly well said well that is all my questions so Henrietta Armstrong thank you so much for joining me today on the liminal gallery podcast it has been such a pleasure talking to you thank you very much Henrietta Armstrong's exhibition, Sanctum Futurum, Relics and Forbidden Desires, continues until the 26th of August at Liminal Gallery 34 Fort Hill in Margate. We have new opening times and are now open Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays from 11 until 4pm and outside of these times by appointment. More information can be found on our website www.liminal-gallery.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode featuring Thelma Spears, who currently has a solo exhibition in the cupboard, our second exhibition space for local artists. The exhibition entitled Nightwalks continues until the 28th of October. Bye for now.